Well, that's a great mental picture to start off any message, isn't it? That's great. Well, if you'll pull your minds out of the gutter and back up here, uh, I am so glad to get to be with you guys this weekend. Uh, as Ben kind of said in the introduction, I had the chance to spend time with your staff a few months ago. I've gotten to know Ben over the last 18 months or so, and uh, I get the chance to work with a lot of teams across the country, and you guys really do have a great team of people leading, here at t- leading you here at Timberlake, and I'm so glad Ben invited me to share in this series called Renew. Uh, but I wanna share with you just a little bit about me so that you'll have a little bit of understanding of kind of where I'm coming from. My wife, Connie, and I have been married for almost 38 years, so as you can see, that means we got married when we were nine. It was kind of an arranged marriage thing. And we have two grown kids. And the best thing about my kids is that they have produced four granddaughters. And so we have four granddaughters, three and under. And I have a ministry called Replenish, uh, where I get to go around and coach pastors and work with their staff teams, helping them sort of understand what does it look like to live and lead from a healthy soul. And so I get the privilege of doing that. And the message tonight really does fit well with the kinds of things I talk about around the country. And um, as Ben said, we're in this series called Renew. And it's really based off of Paul's words in Romans chapter 12 in verse 2, where, where the apostle Paul says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice that word renewing of your mind. He says that when you come to Christ and transformation takes place, part of what happens in your life is you've got to begin to renew or change your thinking. And when we think about that word renew, we we go down to the DMV and renew our driver's license. It's about to expire. And when we renew it, it gives it new life and validation. When you look up the word renew in the dictionary, it really means to, to take something and bring it fresh and strong and new once again. But the question I want to deal with this evening is, so we get it, we have to renew our minds spiritually, but what does it look like to renew your energy? I suspect some of us walked into the room tonight, and the truth is, you're kind of running on fumes. I mean, what this last week has taken out of you, what the pressure at work has done to you, has left you sort of exhausted and empty and feeling pretty stressed out. And for many of us, we're overcommitted, overscheduled, and the truth is tonight, we sit here pretty bone-tired, and we just sort of drug ourselves in here, and I think God has something to say to us. And so to begin to talk about that, I want to tell you a story about my son. Uh, Several years ago, when I was on staff at a church in Southern California, um, he started dating a young lady there named Ryan, and uh, he and Ryan had as their first date to go and play golf at a small golf course there in the area. And so as they began to date and get more serious, I remember Jonathan came and said, hey, Dad, I I think she's the one and I'm gonna ask her to marry me. And so he, he kind of came up with this creative idea to go back to the golf course where they had had their first date and he was gonna propose to her. And the idea was that they were gonna wait till they got to the 18th hole And Jonathan's good friend, in fact, his friend Josh is actually in the service tonight, so he can validate that I'm telling the truth. But Josh's job was to take a golf ball, and when the foursome in front of them had cleared the green, his job was to take the golf ball and put it in the 18th hole. Now, this was no ordinary golf ball because they had sawed the ball into, hollowed it out, and put her engagement ring in the ball. And then they put it back together 
And when he went out on the 18th hole, he dropped the ball into the hole, then ran back, hid in the bushes where he was going to videotape their engagement. And so they get to the 18th hole. Jonathan kind of lays back. Ryan has to go up, pull the flag out of the hole. And when she does, she notices the golf ball down in there. And on it, Jonathan had written what would be her future initials, RW. And so when she picks up the ball, she looks at it sort of curiously. And she goes, look, it's Rick Warren's golf ball. (laughs) And John said, no. And he got down and he proposed to her, took out the ring and asked her, to be his wife, and now 10 years later, they are husband and wife. And here's the point I want you to get. Inside what seemed like a random golf ball was a gift that would forever change her life. And I wanna tell you tonight that inside what seems like a random Old Testament ancient teaching is actually a gift that if you will pay attention to it, could really change our lives. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of reality that we're all in. So whether you're a longtime Christ follower or whether you're just sort of exploring this thing called Christianity, whether you are 55 and an empty nester or you're 30 and have small kids at home, whether you're single or work in the tech industry or whatever you do, every single one of us live in this world that is addicted to fast-paced living. I mean, everything about our generation is defined by quick and speed and hurry up. That's just the world that we live in. And the result is because of our obsession with speed, because of our overscheduling, because of never being unplugged, many of us find ourselves with no space, no quiet, and we show up here tonight bone-tired. If you remember in 2010, Toyota had a major problem with cars, and it was all around stuck accelerators. And I suspect that there are some of us who walked into the room tonight with a bit of a stuck accelerator. It's become for me kind of a metaphor of how we live life in our generation. Just everything always fast, pedal to the metal, always in a hurry, and never having any time. And so we live at this insane pace of life because it's all we know how to do. It's what everyone does around us. And it's even as Christ followers, we find ourselves getting caught up in the flow of that. And I want to confess to you tonight, I'm a hurrier. Um, I wish I had a dime for every time my kids would have heard me say through the years, could you please hurry up? Or times when I've been walking down the street with my wife and I look up and she's like three steps behind me and she says to you, are you going to walk with me or in front of me? And what I want to say is, well, if you'd hurry up, I'd walk with you. But I've been married a long time. I know better than that. But we hate to wait, right? I mean, whether it's waiting in line at the movie or whether it's, you know, a flight that gets delayed or whether it's someone who is telling us a story and inside we're saying, is there a destination to this story? Does it have an ending? Could you hurry up? It's just how we're wired. I've been thinking about starting a support group for compulsive hurriers. Would some of you like to join? Yeah. Here's the good news. We won't have very long meetings because we got, we got stuff to do and things to get on with in our life. But I love what John Ortberg says when he says, hurry is not about a disordered schedule as much as it is about a disordered heart. And for a lot of us, we think that the 
problem with our busyness is just the calendar. And if we could just somehow live smarter and manage our time better and be more wise with our commitments, that somehow we would take care of it. But what we're going to discover tonight is that hurry is not just about external pressures and demands on your calendar. It's also about something internal. And if I was really honest with you tonight, I would tell you that I have this sort of love-hate relationship with my busyness. I mean, on one hand, I hate the hassle and the stress of an overcrowded schedule and the stress of being overcommitted and feeling exhausted. That isn't any fun, but at the same time, I do love being in demand. And I love the adrenaline of a fast-paced life. And I love the idea that, you know, I'm important because after all, busy people are important people. So here's the question I want us to really wrestle with. Does God have anything to say about this? I mean, does he, does he actually care about this issue of the pace of my life, about managing the pace of my time and our obsession with speed? Does he have anything to say? Well, I think he does. And so I want to talk about what would it look like for you to renew your life with a healthy rhythm of life? And you'll notice I intentionally choose the word rhythm. I really don't like the word balance. Balance to me gives the idea that I'm spinning all the plates in my life equally well and that everything is in perfect harmony. And it always seems so elusive because I don't know that I've ever had a moment of balance in my life where everything was working well. But rhythm pictures something different. Rhythm allows for crazy and busy seasons. Rhythm isn't uh, always orderly and it doesn't always um, you know, fit into this nice, neat time management box. Rhythm acknowledges that there are limits to my life and that I choose to live in a way where there can be craziness and busyness, but also seasons and moments and days of rest. So if we're going to get this one right, if we're going to really renew our energy, there are three truths that I think we've got to embrace. And the first one is that you and I live in a universe defined by rhythm. We live in a universe defined by rhythm. So think about this. As you sit here this evening, you breathe with really predictable rhythm. You inhale and exhale um, seven to eight times a minute, 20,000 times a day. There's this rhythm of breathing. And, and completely unbeknownst or, or uh, unconscious to you is your heart's beating in a very predictable rhythm. Each day, the the sun comes up and goes down with rhythm. The tide comes in and goes out with rhythm. Everything about life has a sense of rhythm. Farming has built in this rhythm, this rhythm of planting and harvesting and reaping. And there's this rhythm to farming. And there's a really interesting verse in Leviticus chapter 25 where the Lord says to the nation of Israel, I want you to even give the physical soil a break every seven years. I want you to give the land a Sabbath every seven years because nothing was meant to produce all the time. Everything needs a break. Everything needs a rest. And so the application for you and I is you were made to live in rhythm. You were made to live in rhythm. And if you violate this, if you um, don't pay attention to this, you're going to pay a price. If you keep pushing and pushing and striving and ignoring your limits and depleting your adrenaline and your serotonin, 
you're going to do violence to your body, to your emotions, to your relationships, to your spiritual life. You will do damage to your soul. I remember a couple of years ago getting a call from a guy who was um, 63 years old at the time. He was a longtime leader in the church. He was an executive pastor. Um, 40 years he'd been pushing really hard, living as though he had no limits. And in this particular season, his parents were ill. He was traveling 500 miles every week one way just to try to manage their affairs, take care of their medical needs. And then his pastor went on sabbatical, and for six months, not only was he running the church and the staff, but he was preaching almost every week. And then his wife had gone through some medical issues, and he just continued to deplete himself and deplete himself until finally he hit the wall. And he began to have anxiety attacks and panic attacks. He began... Uh, to have trouble sleeping some days and other days sleeping 14 hours at a time. And it seemed as though his entire life was coming unraveled. And when he called me, I'll never forget what he said at the end of our conversation. He said, Lance, I'm not asking you to help me to get back to where I was. I can't ever go there again. I can't ever live like that again. I know I won't survive. He said, I'm asking you to help me discover a new normal for my life. And that's what some of us need to have, want to have. And this new normal is about rhythm. And there's a guy named Noah Benchay, a Hebrew guy who writes these words. It's the space between the notes that makes the music. It's the space between the notes that makes the music. Jesus regularly modeled this for us. He regularly took time out of the busyness of his ministry and of the demands of, you know, preaching and casting out demons and healing people, he took time to be alone with his heavenly father. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus had an advantage that you and I don't have. And the advantage was that slow was built into the fabric of his culture. When the Bible says that Jesus went to Jericho, that was not a 15-minute car ride. That was an all-day walk on a slow, dusty road. When the sun went down, For the most part, they were pretty much through with their day. But you and I live in a different reality, right? With the advent of electricity, why we can keep working all night long. With the advent of the internet and Facebook and Twitter and email, we can stay plugged in around the clock. We can live in a totally different way. And 21st century life is not friendly to this healthy rhythm of life. And I remember when I went to Saddleback Church down in Southern California, Uh, one of the guys pulled me aside after I'd been there a couple months and he gave me a piece of wisdom that I didn't fully understand at the time. And here's what he said to me. He said, if you're gonna survive working here, you need to understand that Saddleback is like Las Vegas. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's open 24-7. It never shuts down. The emails never stop. The ideas never stop flowing. The meetings never stop. And if you're gonna survive working here, you're gonna have to learn how to manage that because there's always be more work to do than you will ever be able to get to. And the truth is that's no different than some of you in your world because we live in a world that more and more is open 24-7 for everything. So here's the principle I want you to get. Space and slow are friends to your spiritual health. Space and slow are friends to your spiritual health. Think, if Jesus needed that, how much more do you and I need it? 
And there's this rhythm that God built into life and into the DNA of what we need that is about work and rest, produce and restore. There's this great passage of scripture in Mark 1.35. So let me kind of set it up for you. In Mark chapter 1, prior to this verse, Jesus is preaching in, in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, he's the guest preacher that day in a synagogue, which has its own pressure, right, of preaching in front of a crowd. And then during the service, he gets confronted with demon-possessed people. Now, that feels fairly intense to me. And then the Bible says after church that day, he goes over to Peter's house for lunch, and there's all the social kind of pressure of of engaging people. And then Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and so Jesus heals her. And then the Bible says at the end of the day, before he goes to bed, they brought everybody in town who was sick and demon-possessed to his door. And so before Jesus drops off to sleep, he heals more people and casts out more demons. That's a busy, intense day. So when you read the next verse, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house. And if you stop right there, you go, well, that makes sense. He's the son of God. He ought to get up before anybody else. He's only got three years to launch this public ministry. I mean, this is a startup thing that he's doing called the kingdom. I mean, he ought to be out there pressing the flesh, preaching sermons, marketing himself, casting out demons, you know, promoting his message. But what does he do? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up and left and went to what? A solitary place. He went to be alone, to create space in his life just to be with his heavenly father. And then what's interesting is the disciples come looking for him and they say, hey, everybody in town's looking for you. You need to come back. There's more ministry to do back in this village. And Jesus says, yeah, we're not going there. We're going to new places to preach the gospel. And what is clear in the passage is this. Jesus got his next set of instructions in that quiet place. And I think sometimes, maybe I've had a hard time discerning the voice of God in my life and what he wants in my life because there's so much noise, so much clutter, I'm so busy, and my life is so fast that there isn't any time. So truth number one, there's this rhythm of life that God established for everything, including you. But here's the really good news. God has given us a very practical strategy for how to live this healthy rhythm of life. And this strategy is that it's the life uh, of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath is one of God's strategies for helping you live this life. So let me give you a little biblical background because if you're like me, when I was growing up, I, I knew about Sabbath and I knew that it was mentioned in the Ten Commandments, but I never heard a sermon on it, never had a Bible study on it. I just always assumed that this thing called Sabbath was just one of those Old Testament things that we didn't do anymore. So let me take just a moment to kind of go back and trace what really does the Bible say about this? So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says that God for six days created and on the seventh day he did what? He rested, right? Now he didn't do that because he was exhausted He did that because he was modeling something for us. And what he was modeling is the importance of moving from being creative and productive to now being reflective and quiet. Did you know that the first thing in the Bible that is ever called holy is this thing called Sabbath? It wasn't a place. It wasn't a person. It was a space of time, a 24-hour period called Sabbath. This idea of Sabbath is so important that God actually puts it inside the Ten Commandments. 
right up there where he tells you not to lie and murder and steal, and he tells you to honor your parents and love God, right in the middle of that, the fourth commandment, the one that's the longest commandment and the one that has the most explanation with it is this command to practice Sabbath. Now, if you go to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, um, you'll see that it says, Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days a week are set apart for your daily duties and regular work. But the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. Now notice in the passage that God puts value on work. And we ought to work hard. God left us here on earth to be productive. He gave us gifts and assignments so that we could make a difference in our world. He gave us purpose for this life. And so you can't really even appreciate Sabbath if you're not working hard. And so he says, six days I want you to work, but then I want you to stop. And the word Sabbath literally means just stop or to cease. That's what the word literally means. And so I want you to get two pictures in your mind. One, I want you to get the picture of a jet ski. So uh, you've been on a jet ski, right? 40, 50 miles an hour, wind blowing through your hair. Well, some of you, the wind blows through your hair. Um, some of us, that's not the case. But on a, on a jet ski, you can cover a lot of ground in a hurry. And it's exhilarating, right? But it's all on the surface. And there's nothing wrong with jet skis. We all need jet ski experiences. The adrenaline rush is great. The adventure is awesome. But there is also a whole different world that I want you to get, and it's this. Scuba diving, so much different, right? It's slower. You don't cover as much territory. It's underneath the surface. But there is a whole beauty and a world that you don't ever see when you're just blazing across the top of the water 50 miles an hour. And part of what God wants for you is a rhythm of, yes, love the jet ski, enjoy the jet ski, there's some things that are exhilarating and they're wonderful, but God also wants you to experience this thing of what it's like to slow down and to be quiet and to go slower and to experience a world that's underneath the waterline. You see, Sabbath is anchored in God's design of the universe. If you go back to the book of Exodus in verse 11, after God commands them to obey the Sabbath in Exodus 20, verse 11, he says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day, and he blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. And so God says, hey, this whole thing of you keeping the Sabbath, I modeled it for you in creation. Because I created for six days, and then I stopped. And God said, I'm commanding you to do the very same thing. But then, if you go to the book of Deuteronomy... He now makes it quite different because now he anchors Sabbath in what I would call our chosenness. Now, I don't know if that's a legitimate word, but you, you get the idea. And here's what he says in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, now why, why does he mention Egypt and then being set free, because here's the point. God was saying, when you were back in Egypt, 
There was no time off. There was no Sabbath. There was no vacation. There was no stopping. And when you were under the tyranny of Pharaoh, you had to work all the time. But now what God is saying is when you are now under my rule, part of what makes you unique and different as my people is you stop. And here's the deeper lesson God wants you to get in that. That your value to God is not just in what you produce. That even when you're still and quiet and doing nothing, you're just as valuable to God. And for some of us, that is one of life's hardest lessons, right? Because we've always found our significance in what we accomplish. And unless we're busy and living life with hair on fire, running 100 miles an hour, we think we don't have any value. And God wants you to know, even when you do nothing, you're valuable to me. So what does the rest of the Bible say? I mean, we, we get it's in the Ten Commandments, but what did Jesus say about this? Well, he doesn't say actually a whole lot. In fact, if you read the Gospels, it seems like Jesus is always getting in trouble for violating the Sabbath. But actually, what Jesus was getting in trouble with the Pharisees about was that he was violating all these hundreds of rules that they had come up with to define the law and to define what it meant to work and not work. And in fact, the, the main thing that Jesus taught about Sabbath comes in Mark 2, 27, when he says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, and I'm giving you a loose translation here, you guys have totally jacked this up. Like you took what was a gift and you have now made it a religious burden and God never intended for it to be that way. But nowhere do you ever see Jesus taking the Ten Commandments down to nine. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? Does he say much about it? Well, he actually doesn't say a lot about it. But in Colossians 2, he says, Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And what Paul is saying is this. Sabbath isn't the litmus test for your spirituality. It's not at the center of our faith. The gospel and the cross and Jesus are at the center of our faith. And things like spiritual disciplines and religious celebrations and Sabbath keepings are only tools to help me love Jesus more deeply. But it's a valuable tool. It's a valuable strategy that God has given us. Because you see, Psalm 46.10, maybe it's the biggest indictment on our modern culture. It's just eight simple words which says, be still and know that I am God. Charles Spurgeon said, rest time is not waste time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. It is wisdom to take an occasional furlough. And in the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing less. So here's the plan of God for you. Work hard, really hard, six days a week, but make sure there's a seventh day where you stop. On six days, let it be about doing and about accomplishing, but at least on the seventh, let it be about being. Six days, go fast if you want, but on the seventh, make sure that you go slow. It's a gift. It's a strategy from God to help you manage your world. So outside in um, New York City, uh, at St. Patrick's Cathedral, there's a couple of, of things, and one of them is a statue of Atlas. And the statue of Atlas has him 
obviously holding the world on his shoulders. And the truth is there are days when you feel that way, right? The stress of projects at work, the stress of finances, the stress of your physical health, and you feel like you are carrying the world, and that's what life feels like to you. But if you go across the street from the Statue of Atlas, and you go inside the St. Patrick's Cathedral, you'll find this. It's six-year-old Jesus holding the world in his hand. And what a contrast. Because on Sabbath, God says, I got it. I'm in control. You're not indispensable. You can take the time off. You can unplug because you don't have to be God. I'm God. And I got it in my hand. Now, again, let me just tell you something as a kind of recovering workaholic, as someone who by nature is sort of type A and driven in my personality. When I first started learning how to do this, I got to tell you, I hated it. Because... When you are compulsively busy and when you are a workaholic, you don't know how to slow down. And even if you try to slow down on the outside, on the inside, you feel like you're, you're a parked car with the engine revving and the RPMs redlining. But over time, I have learned the value and the importance. And now, Sabbath is something that I look forward to. It is the carrot on the end of the stick of a, visit, of a very busy, pressure-filled week. The Jews have this great symbolic uh, exercise they do. When they practice Sabbath, they light a candle at the beginning of Sabbath to mark that this is a day that's different, to remind them throughout the next 24 hours that this is a day that's to be slower and quieter and more enjoyable and relaxing and at the end of the 24 hours, they take the candle and they extinguish it in a cup of wine and then they take some of that wine and pour it into a saucer. And the symbolism is this, that if you will do Sabbath well, it will spill over into the rest of your week and you'll be a better person the other six days because you did it God's way the seventh day. So God has a strategy. I want to challenge you to really consider that. For some of you, the real application of this message might be for you guys to go home and have a conversation with a good friend or with your spouse about what would it look like for us to actually have a simpler, more sane pace of life. All right, let me, let me close with this last point. Third truth that you got to get. you got to have a plan to have a healthy rhythm of life. You will not drift into this. One of the reasons I went through the kind of what the Bible says about this is, is for this reason. If you don't have a sense of conviction about this, the compulsive busyness of our generation and the gravitational pull to hurry will always win the day. And so you need to put a stake in the ground and say, hey, this is not just something that sounds nice. It's not just a preference for me. No, this is a conviction. This is God's plan. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's not a suggestion. It's actually his command, and it's his best way for my life. And what I want you to hear is that Sabbath is not a have to. It's a get to. So let me give you five words to think practically about how you would frame out Sabbath. So here's the first word, prepare. Prepare. It takes some effort on the front end to plan to have a Sabbath. So for me, I travel all the time. There's no way for me to do Sabbath on the same day every week. But it's been important for me to, to have it on my calendar. And by the way, it, it's different for me than marking it as a day off to actually call it Sabbath. It, it has a different connotation 
in my life. And so I would challenge you to start thinking about what does it look like to prepare? You know, when you think about families in the Old Testament or Jews in the first century, they had to prepare. There were animals to think about. There were meals to prepare ahead of time, chores to get done so that they could actually unplug. And you have to think ahead and plan ahead in order for this to happen. And by the way, one of the biggest objections or questions I get when we teach on this is if you're a young family with small kids at home. Because I think sometimes when people hear a teaching on Sabbath, what they think is spa day. (laughs) Soft, beautiful music, you know, the flowing water over the rocks, a gentle massage and dim light, you know, cucumber water. No, that's not realistic, right? But... Could you have a day, even with family, that you figure out, how do we stop? How do we stop anything that feels like an ought to, and now we focus on the things that put life in us? What would that look like? All right, second word is the word stop. What would it look like for you to stop for a 24-hour period of time? What would that look like for your technology and your phone and your email and what kind of Boundaries do you need to have around that? The third word is the word rest. For some of you, you're absolutely exhausted and there's not enough physical sleep and rest in your life. The fourth word is the word delight. Here's the question I want to challenge you to write is what is life giving to me? What is it that when I do it, it puts life in my tank? For some of us, there's not anything. All we do is work and manage life and we don't do anything that puts life in our tank and that doesn't work over the long haul. And then finally is the word worship. The Bible says that it is a Sabbath unto the Lord and that there ought to be times to linger with God in unhurried prayer and reflection and gratitude and walking just a little bit slower. So again, I, don't, I wouldn't pretend to know all the implications for you, but, but here's what I do want to challenge you with. It's a biblical strategy that God has given us. It's in our best interest, and we would do well to start figuring out how we do this. So I just close with this little story. When I was a kid, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and um, we, we didn't get much snow, but two or three times a year, we would get three or four inches of snow. And I remember when the forecast would call for a good snow, The next morning I would wake up, first thing I'd do is look out my window and if the yard and the street were covered with snow, the next thing I did is I ran into our den because way back in the old days, they used to put across the bottom of the TV all of the schools and government agencies that were closed for the day and I remember him just scrolling across the bottom of that old TV and then then it said, Osuna Elementary closed for the day and it was like you could hear the hallelujah chorus in heaven right, singing. And my mom was always awesome about snow days because she never made us do chores or do homework or anything like that. It was a day to do anything we wanted. Can I tell you something? God has given you permission every seven days to have a snow day, to do whatever puts life in you, whatever delights you, to slow down, to rest, to re whatever it is, God has given you every seven days a snow day. So take it. Let's pray.